0: What's up, everybody? It's Ben. Normally, here on the podcast uh, feed, we have conversations where it's just Caleb and I sitting down and we're breaking into something that we're trying to study here in Brooklyn and just give little overviews of sections of text and stuff. Uh, This series is a little bit different, and we thought it'd be worth putting here on the feed so that both people here in Brooklyn and maybe those of you who tune in in other places might be benefited from some Bible class discussions that we've had recently regarding politics and how Christians should view politics. I and say at the outset, this isn't um, a study that's designed to tell people how they should vote or even if they should vote or how they should participate politically or if they should participate politically. It's more about the kind of perspective Christians should have about their relationship to government and politics. Uh, these are class discussions conducted over Zoom over a period of weeks here in the late summer, early fall of 2020. Um, Obviously, the audio quality is rough in some spots, so you hope you can forgive that. Um, We just thought some people might find it valuable to listen to what some other people are dealing with and thinking about in Scripture. And if you have any questions or things you want to talk about, as always, reach out to us. Let us know what you think, and we hope that all of us can think of ourselves not so much as Americans or as citizens of any nation of the world, but as citizens of heaven, followers of King Jesus. Thanks for tuning in, as always. We hope this is helpful for you. So here's the thing. We haven't um, talked about this yet, but I want to go ahead and get into it now. You'll you'll notice in this passage in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12, that uh, you may have it in quotation marks or there may be a little blocked out font. Peter wasn't just making up cool phrases to help Christians think about themselves. He actually is quoting from the Old Testament. Um, The chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation stuff, that's all from Exodus chapter 19, when the people of Israel first came to Mount Sinai to meet with God. Uh, The people for God's own possession is a reference from Deuteronomy 7, where they look back on that and remember what God had done for them. The bit about being uh, not a people, but now the people of God, not receive mercy, receive mercy. That was centuries later from the prophet Hosea and speaking about God's goodness to them. Uh, And then the language of being aliens and strangers relates to what happened with Israel whenever they were in Babylon. So This passage is uh, talking about Israel. And so what I think that teaches us is that we can learn a lot about our place in the world and our relationships to governments, politics, whatever you want to call it, uh, by looking at Israel. So here's what I want to do for a second is uh, look at just that, um, is how Israel uh, is presented in uh, the scriptures in relation to uh, governments. But I need to start here with this question, who are God's special people? This one may be a no-dub, but I think we need to talk about it anyways cuz it's something that comes up and y'all may have some comments. You may you may disagree with some of this stuff or you may just be like, "Oh yes, that's exactly right." And a lot of people like don't keep this in mind. I think it happens in our culture in particular. So, let's do it here. Uh, who are God's people? We know we know Israel was was God's special people. By the way, I want to note that the the nation that's called Israel today is really a um, Uh, I'm going to say kind of a fabrication of ancient Israel. So I probably should have written on this slide, ancient Israel, Um, the modern nation state that is called Israel in the middle East. There's nothing in scripture that really supports the idea that like Christians should be like out here fighting for Israel or trying to support Israel. We should care about all nations, all peoples of all places. But uh, the, the nation state known as Israel today is not Uh, doesn't trace their lineage straight back to the Israel of the Bible. So if anybody has any questions about that, feel free to bring those up. But here we go. Um, Let's just notice some things about God's special people. They were chosen, um, starting with Abraham, going through the Exodus. Uh, They went through trials in the wilderness to come to the promised land of Canaan that God gave them. Whenever they were there, they eradicated the Canaanites that were uh, people who were Pagans who sacrificed their children, committed all kinds of acts of immorality, and God told the Israelites at that time to purge the the, uh, land of the Canaanites. We'll come back to that more in a minute. Um, Israel was ruled when they lived in the land of Canaan by prophets and priests and kings, uh, and they were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be a royal priesthood. They were supposed to minister for God in the world so that people would know them. And they had this destiny that God laid out for them. You read throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, they were going to be glorified and lifted up and have victory over their enemies and all that kind of stuff. Okay, if we went and interviewed 100 people and said, hey, what nation is parallel to the nation of Israel today? What kinds of answers do you think we would get? If we just started going and interviewing folks, what answer do you think we would get? This is an opinion thing. Uh, But if we said, hey, what nation is parallel to the nation of Israel? What kind of answers do you all think we would get?
1: Uh, Maybe uh, Italy with Rome as the, you know, Roman Catholic
0: site of hope. being. That's a good call. That's a really good call. I think that's a great one. And people probably, (laughs) I I don't have any uh, data on that, but I bet you there are people who've said that kind of stuff that, Oh yeah. Um, the, the nation, I mean, if anybody's been to Italy, it kind of feels like a promised land in some parts, you know, and to your point, Brian, this has been a powerful place and there's a lot of religious kind of stuff that goes on there. So yeah, good. Okay. That might be an answer we get. Other thoughts on some of the answers we might get with, uh, what nation people might say is, um, if we're talking about nation states, uh, what nation is um, is parallel to Israel today? What do you guys we got? We got Italy. That's one option. Other other options that we could throw out on the table. America. America. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ruth got it. Sorry, Brian. Ruth's was the correct answer. uh, There are a lot of people that say, and let me just break it down for you. I'm going to read you a quote here in just a minute, but let me just break it down and y'all add to this. If you want to add to this as far as how people draw the parallel, um, people think of the United States of America as kind of a a divinely provided for place. Matter of fact, some of the the capitals, like, yeah, I don't know how many of y'all know this, but the capital of Rhode Island is uh, Providence. And the reason why it's called Providence is because there were some people who were undergoing some religious persecution, actually here in the United States, and they, uh, they ended up in Rhode Island, and they, they named it Providence. And their thought was, God has given us this place because uh, we're fleeing religious persecution, just like Israel had their trials in the wilderness. We got on the ships and we rode across the sea, just like Israel crossed over the Jordan River to come into the promised land of Canaan. This land is your land, this land is my land, this land was made for you and me. This land was made for you and me. Uh, and of course, that's why we have the right as, uh, as Anglo-Saxon uh, immigrants to this promised land of Canaan from the Atlantic to the Pacific, uh, the indigenous peoples, they're just like the Canaanites and people would use rhetoric throughout history to say, oh, the indigenous peoples in the Americas, they're just like the canaanites they're evil and all these kinds of things therefore we should eradicate them uh you know kill them drive them out etc etc that was some of the the language that was used um or some of the rhetoric that was used to justify some of those things and so our generals and our presidents and so forth we think of them and have reverence for them and venerate them set up monuments which by the way um in the bible when you set up monuments made in the image of people and stuff like that, those were usually implements of worship. And y'all know some people use monuments uh, of a variety of kinds as implements of worship, socio-political worship. Um, As far as being a light to the nations, the United States of America, um, different politicians have utilized that to say, oh yeah, yeah, we have this responsibility and duty. For instance, the Monroe Doctrine, which was established in the 1800s by President James Monroe, uh, he, Kind of let it be known that hey if you mess around with anybody in the america's that that means the western hemisphere if you mess with argentina brazil people in the caribbean that's an encroachment on uh, the united states and we'll fight now of course it was kind of portrayed as this benevolent thing we're gonna fight for our neighbors really of course it was for other reasons but you get the point this rhetoric was used to say oh we're uh you know we we're the special people we've had this uh we have this special nation And of course, uh, you guys have probably heard of the the Doctrine of Manifest Destiny that was popularized by people uh, with some of the political movements of people like Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and and others. Uh, Even the notion of America always progressing, always growing, always winning battles and all that kind of thing. The fact that uh, we never admit whenever we don't win wars or, you know, whatever, stuff like that. yeah i mean you can see that this is a parallel that's been drawn i want to read y'all a quote i'm gonna stop this share here so that i can find the quote i want to read it to you all because it's uh, it's it's almost jarring honestly uh but it's real this is from uh a, a man named john winthrop who was the first governor of the massachusetts bay colonies in 1630 and this is an article written from uh, somebody from uh, a university who is uh recording this in 1630 john winthrop famously described their new, their new endeavor In a sermon he wrote on the ship arbella while heading to the new world that would be the you know north america where we live he referenced a phrase from Jesus' sermon on the mount and he said this is a man on a boat riding over the ocean to come to um the new world to what we know as our home he said for we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill the eyes of all people are upon us so here's this man He's going with these immigrants from uh, Europe, Anglo Saxon Europe, and here they come to the Americas. And he takes Jesus' words and says, We, these immigrants to America, we are going to be the city set on the hill. Uh, the, the, the text goes on to say Winthrop immediately went on to describe the wager before the new colony explicitly in covenantal terms applied to Israel in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 30. If you as a people are faithful to god's commands in scripture as a people you will prosper if you are disobedient as a people quote i declare to you today that you shall perish you shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the jordan to enter and possess except winthrop intentionally rewords the ends of the quote taking out the jordan river verbiage replacing it with quote the good land whither we pass over this vast sea to possess it Historian Mark Knoll notes, most of the Puritans who came to New England held that the Bible teaches and so on and so on. It gets boring. Anyway, you guys get the point that uh, really since the very first people came to the United States of America, people have said, America is Israel. I'm going to pause. Why don't you guys comment on that? What do you think about that? How do you think that's an easy trap to fall into mentally? What are the consequences of thinking like that? of thinking of America as in the United States of America, because there's a lot of places called America, all of South America, all of North America. But we're, when I say America, I'm talking about the United States of America. Um, wh- what do you think about thinking of the US as the new Israel, God's special nation and all that kind of stuff? What do you think is, is uh, problematic about that? What are the consequences of that? Why is it easy trap to fall into? Um, talk about it, what do you think? Jessica.
2: Yes. Sorry. Um, so when you were talking about that, I, it kind of brought to mind Simon the Sorcerer. Um, so just thinking about how, um, people tend to use God and, um, their relationship with God for personal gain. Um, and so just thinking about, um, kind of how people view America and back when it first was founded or even present day, um, so just making sure that we have a healthy balance of making sure that we're keeping ourselves in check and we're being sincere in our faith and not using it for political gain um, to make sure to to sound as though we're being benevolent, benevolent, like you said, um, with the Monroe Doctrine um, to give a perception when we actually have um, more nefarious motives. Um, so yeah, just like that's all.
0: Great call. Uh, that's a really good parallel too with Simon. I love that. Yeah, really good other thoughts about how this, this notion of, Oh, America is the, is the, the nation of Israel, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what's problematic about that? How do we fall into that trap? How can we avoid that trap? Uh, keep going. What are some other responses y'all would have to that? Brian.
1: Um, yeah. Um, I'm not I'm a little shaky on the, uh, scripture here, but, uh, The idea of it being a problem when you start assigning physical borders to what is going to be, you know, the new Israel or the people of God, because uh, I know from Revelation and from other scripture that we do know that, um, as Jesus said, you know, we won't worship God on a mountain or uh, in the, uh, in the, uh, the, you know, at the altar, but our, you know, we're going to be God's kingdom is going to be in our heart, good. Uh, and uh, to put, you know, to try to put, almost like taking the Old Testament, to try to put a land piece, a piece of land, especially your own land, as that is, you know, almost could be conceived of as like blasphemy or, um, you know, you know, betraying God's word.
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it is good. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, y'all keep it going. Other thoughts about this issue of thinking about the United States as, uh, as the parallel, the fulfillment of uh, the nation of Israel?
3: One problem is the nation of Israel failed. Like they proved that they couldn't be their own savior and they needed a savior to come. And so if we as the U.S. position ourselves as a savior or like we're going to fix the world or help the world, then we are stepping into something that isn't even possible and is stripped of the power of Christ.
0: That's a great call. Love that. Yeah. Keep it going guys. Other thoughts about this issue of uh, thinking about the United States as, uh, as Israel. And by the way, maybe I'm way off. Maybe most people don't think about this. I, I, I would say I've run into this certainly in, in reading things. And I think even in rhetoric, sometimes we hear that in the way people talk or the way people think people use language like, Oh, America's a Christian nation, stuff like that. And if what that means is there's lots of Christians here, well, that's relatively speaking true. Uh, at least a lot of people claim to be Christians for sure. But I think when we talk about being a Christian nation, I think I th- I'll just say we do not need to talk that way. Um, no nation is Christian other than the people of God, those who actually are Christians. And that spans all nations. Um, but I think this is—I think this is, a, this is something we want to think about a little bit before we keep on progressing with trying to figure out what lessons Israel teaches us. Um, anything else you guys want to say about this issue of thinking about the United States as a new Israel or as the fulfillment of the Israel uh, pattern or whatever? All right, cool. So uh, le- now let me show you, and uh, uh, Damo put this in the in the chat box, and uh, I'm just gonna um, just kind of uh, whoopsie. Let's go through this real quick. Uh, to show exactly what she said. And that is that Christians really are God's special people today. You know, um, first Peter two, nine, the chosen generation, the holy nation, right? Uh, trials in the wilderness. Well, life in the world is trials in the wilderness for us dealing with temptation first Corinthians 10 Hebrews three highlight that as far as thinking about the promised land. It's not about a location, a geographic location. It's the rest that we have in Christ. Uh, and in terms of eradication of the Canaanites, that was a very, very specific instruction that God gave. That is not how God's people are supposed to, be, to think about you know, those who are, are not believers in God. We don't fight against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6 says. We war against sin and against evil. As far as the people we venerate, we don't have people anymore. We venerate one, Christ alone. He is our prophet. He's our high priest. He's the king. And as we follow after him, he commanded us, he instructed us to be uh, lights in the world. Uh, that's what Matthew 5 and verse 16 says. And uh, as far as the destiny of glory and victory, we have that in the resurrection. That's what we look forward to. That's what we're going to have one day. And we rejoice in that. So whenever we think about who are God's special people, is the church of Jesus Christ. It's those who he's gathered out of every nation, tribe, and tongue and brought together. And, uh, and so we have very different standards than the rest of the world. Uh, and we're going to have to live differently just like Israel did. Um, I want to highlight a couple of scriptures to you guys and um us to look at go to deuteronomy chapter 7 in your bible so now when you think about what was israel's relationship to uh, the nations around them because okay if we as god's people are supposed to in some way be parallel to israel we're not exactly the same because we don't live in one geographic place we're a nation of all nations um we don't have kings that rotate out every few years or prophets or priests we have one so there's definitely a it's not exactly the same but there are principles. And one of the principles we wanna think about as we think about sociopolitical engagement, relationship to world governments, uh, is what was Israel's relationship to world governments? Let me be really clear about something here. Um, The way we should think of ourselves as Christians is as a nation of people. In other words, we should not think of ourselves as Americans or um, whatever country you're from, if you're on here and you're from a different country. Uh, We shouldn't think of ourselves in that way. We should think of ourselves as the people of God, the nation of God. And that spans all nations, all places, all times. And whenever we relate to a government that we uh, live near, like, for instance, the United States government, or if we lived in Rome, the Roman government, or if we lived in South Africa, the South African government, or fill in the blank, that's not, there's a sense in which that's not our country. We're going to talk about this in more detail next week when we talk about being exiles or being strangers in a strange land. Um, but we should think of ourselves as being about a part of a different nation entirely. So like I said, I know this is kind of a little bit of a, uh, for me, at least maybe it's not for you guys, but I think it's a tricky thing to get in our heads. But I think it's really important. I need to understand myself not as an American, not as a fill in the blanky of whatever place you're from. That's secondary. I may be from those places, but that's secondary. Really what I am is I'm a member of the kingdom of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. That's what I am. All right, so with that in mind, Israel, they were supposed to be, think of themselves as a distinct nation. And I'm just going to do something real quick here before we get to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And y'all help me out if you want to highlight other things. Uh, the idea of being separate from the nations and being different from the nations was intrinsic to the Israel story all the way through. started out with Abraham. Abraham, a man who lived in one of the most advanced and powerful societies known to man up to that point. God says, Leave your home in your country. That's Genesis 12. He doesn't say, I want you to be a blessing because you're from this powerful place. He says, Leave it. The way that Abraham would be a blessing for all the nations, bring God's salvation to the nations, was whenever he stepped outside of socio political loyalties that might uh, cloud his loyalty to God. Abraham's family lived as just Bedouins, they had no home. They were Tent dwellers who would move from place to place, just trying to find feed for their animals. Eventually they all ended up in Egypt, but they didn't become Egyptians. They were segregated off by the Egyptians themselves because there was an understanding. You're not like us. You're different. You're a holy nation. They come out of Egypt after their slavery and and being brutalized by the, the Egyptians for centuries. And they come out, and God calls them to be the passage we read earlier from 1 Peter 2 that's quoting uh, Exodus 19. God said, you're going to be my holy nation. All the earth is mine, but you guys are going to be my special chosen people. So from Abraham to the time of Abraham's grandkids and great-grandkids living in Egypt to the Exodus from Egypt, Israel's story was all about being separate, being different, being holy among all the nations. Let me read the text to you guys. I'm going to put it on the screen here to make it a little easier. Deuteronomy chapter seven, and we're going to read just a couple verses. We're not going to read the whole thing here, Um, but I'm going to read it. And then uh, you guys just respond to it. Tell me what you think about this. Deuteronomy seven. uh, Here's what the people were supposed to do. Moses says, when the Lord, your God brings you into the land, which you are entering to take possession of it. And he clears away many nations before you. And he lists off all these nations. He says, these are seven nations, more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. He also says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your sons to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then God's anger would be kindled. He would destroy you. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars. And dash uh, their their altars into peep, uh, pieces because verse six you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Okay, Deuteronomy seven, um, what what stands out to you guys in the instruction of what we just read? And I'm going to take uh, take it off the screen here, and you can uh, you can just kind of respond or look at it in your own scripture. There's some things I think that are pretty hard for us to read and pretty hard for us to even understand. So feel free to ask your questions or be like, Hey, this bothers me. I don't even understand how this works. But what do you see in Deuteronomy seven as far as Israel's relationships uh, that they were supposed to have with the nations around them? What jumps out at you? What speaks to you in the passage we just read there in Deuteronomy chapter seven, what is, what is Israel's relationship, their international relationships, What were they supposed to be like with the nations?
3: I think, and maybe I'm just thinking this more from a conversation I had earlier, but I think our present society is so um, focused on everyone having an equal say, everyone can be right, like your truth is your truth, like we all have our own. And so the superiority of Israel here, coming in and having like a final say and coming in and being the right ones, I think is hard to swallow. Of like that just coming in and they're just no one else is in that position and I think that that's sometimes hard for us because that's not what society says is fair or right or good
0: there's only one nation of God at this time right by the way I think that's still true there's only one people group that really belong to God and that is those who are in Christ okay again this is not about any nation-state but that's a pretty hard thing uh, to embrace yeah what are some of the instructions you guys see? I mean, these kind of make us icky and I want us to talk about them a little bit because I think they can be misused and abused um, as we bring this teaching forward and try to understand it in our context. But uh, what are some of the instructions that are given for how they're supposed to relate to the, the people around them? Uh, Robin and then Brian.
4: Um, I think the, the not intermarrying mm-hmm. part um, really stood out to me and especially when you talk about how some some of these things are like misused or reused i think about how um how things like that were also thought about like during times of like segregation in our country yeah like people would use the bible to justify um why like different races couldn't marry each other and even during the time when when, like schools were trying to be integrated or started to be integrated um there are um like white people in our country who would use the bible to say like oh but we shouldn't like we shouldn't be integrated we should stay separate from each other so.
0: that's right that's right which back to what we're talking about whenever you think about the united states of america as uh and particularly anglo-saxon united states of america as the nation of israel and you come out with stuff like that. Uh, let me just pause for a second before, unless, Brian, you were going to comment especially on this, but uh, I'll come right back to you, Brian. Uh, what do you guys see? What is in the text the reason that they were not supposed to have international marriages? Because there's not – I mean, we can't get around it. God says don't mix and mingle with the nations. Don't have international marriages. But what do you see? What's the reason why that God gives why they were not to marry um, among the nations? It's like
4: for – religious reasons, not for like racial reasons.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was really about interfaith marriage. It wasn't really about international marriage. It was, don't get me wrong, but there are actually examples of international marriages in the Bible. People like Rahab, for instance. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, what's her face? Uh, I'm forgetting her name now. Ruth. Uh, it's all about the Ards, I guess. So this is not, and by the way, those are people in the lineage of Jesus. So God's not anti-international marriage, but what it was, was the interfaith element. The mixing of values, the mixing of standards, the holy standards of God's people and the unholy, idolatrous, wicked standards of the nations around them. That's what God was concerned about. But it is a really extreme law. Do not marry them. Do not intermarry with these people who have different values um, than God wants us to have. Uh, Extreme level of holiness. Brian, go ahead. You've been sitting on go. Go for it.
1: Yeah, just um, talk about stuff that really... Uh, turns us off in our in our day um and for good reason because of the way again danger when you're taking something literally um from from the bible from the old testament the idea so the words that talk about um you know destroying them not just beating them and taking their land but destroying them break down their altars dash in pieces their pillars chop down their ashram burn their carved images with fire so I can see where that would be taken literally. To you know, we talk about destroying another uh, group's culture uh, to get them to uh, um, assimilate, right? Is the uh, the word you know assimilated to into uh, the American culture or what they might have thought was the Anglo-Saxon American uh, Christian culture, and um, and of course that's terrible um, to take that. So again? It's like when you take the nation and try to make it literally. Okay, we're going to have a nation, you know, like Israel. Um, and you're not really, you're not seeing uh, that when Jesus comes and uh, he talks about the nation of Israel being spiritual. And um, you know, again, God is not telling people to come to America and destroy other people's culture, or bring them here and destroy their culture. Um, or not to destroy anyone else's culture uh, but it's again it's it's a question of I think in, in these times it's more like holding fast to our faith um, and uh, not destroying anything but it's certainly like you were saying about the dangers the ways things can be read I think these things were literally read as we need to destroy other people's culture like completely like eradicate them um, because you know because this is what the good book says.
0: That's right. That's right. And similar, I mean, you're making really a similar point to what Robin was highlighting, that people have used this to justify all kinds of wars and um, essentially genocides and things of that nature. Um, now, look, should we be on the war path as Christians? For sure. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare so we do have weapons. We are at war. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. I mean, so that, that's this is Canaan language. This is entering in and taking down Jericho and eradicating the Canaanites and their influence. This is this is a, an application that, that Paul uses. Now listen to what he says. Second uh, Corinthians 10 and verse five. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive To the obedience of Christ, you hear he's using the same language, the same principle of eradicating evil, wiping out all this stuff, and even being an act of judgment on God's part, using His people Israel. Well, listen. Whenever you go around living a righteous life, when you go around preaching the gospel, when you go around telling people that Jesus is King, you're doing the same thing. Now, you're not supposed to go killing folks. That's that's that was a very specific commandment for a specific time and purpose. That's not God's intention. For us uh, now, by the way, if you has questions about that, feel free to reach out. We can side channel to kind of explain some of why God was commanding that at that time. I don't want to get into all that now, but I do want to highlight that we should have the same mentality that Israel was supposed to have. I'm not going to mix and mingle with the nations. I'm not going to rely on the strength of the nations. I'm not going to, and maybe I'll say more with that in a second with another scripture, but we're going to make sure to understand that we are something separate. We're something different. So I shouldn't think like, oh, American values are my values or fill in the blank with whatever my political persuasion is. Those values are my values. Look, it may be that they happen to overlap sometimes, but they are a nation that's ultimately not serving God. We are a part of God's people and we need to understand ourselves as such and think of ourselves in that context. Look at another passage in, uh, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 31. I'm not gonna put this on the screen. Let's just read it and, uh, and then talk about it. Isaiah chapter 31, we're fast forwarding a few hundred years and the people, they had totally ignored what Moses told them in Deuteronomy seven. They had totally ignored the identity that they had from their birth with their ancestor, Abraham, through their exodus from Egypt, And uh, through the time they were supposed to live as a holy nation for God in Canaan, they had intermingled with the nations. Maybe you all want to add to this list. One of the best examples of this, or I should say saddest examples, is King Solomon. This great, wise, wealthy, successful king ruined his life and the life of his kingdom because he violated exactly this instruction. He did marry Women of the nations. And they did turn his heart away to serve foreign gods and not to be devoted to the Lord his God alone. And Solomon was just the first of many, many of them. Ahab did the same thing. Uh, And we could go on down the line with those kinds of things. Besides that, they made all kinds of treaties with nations. Whenever they were in trouble, instead of praying to God to help them, they would make alliances with other nations. And listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 31 and verse 1 Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy one of Israel nor seek the Lord yet. He also is wise and will bring disaster and he does not retract his words, but he will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand and he helps, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. Respond to this text. What do you see here in Isaiah 31 verses 1 through 3? What's the exhortation? What's the, what's the mentality that God's challenging his people? Uh, to, to recalibrate and to, to think better. If you, if you want to just kind of put it in your own words or, or, or describe what you see as the exhortation or the challenge that God presents to his people Israel here in, uh, in Isaiah 31.
3: I think just that trust in the world and the physical powerful, the things that we think have power in the world, like horses and strong nations and men and um, just reorienting how we see what's powerful in the world and where we can actually place our trust.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Other, other description of this text, other things you guys see here in this text, what do y'all want to say? Let me ask the question a little different way. Why do you think Israel had such an issue with this? Why would it be alluring, tempting, um, something they would want to do to rely on other nations for their strength? Uh, Or to intermingle with the nations, to intermarry with the nations, to uh, adopt the culture of the nations and the art. By the way, idols weren't just instruments of worship. I mean, they were great pieces of art, you know. Um, They were great cultural touchstones of ancient civilizations that existed much longer than the nation of Israel had existed. Uh, Why do you think some of these things would have been, if you were an Israelite, why would it have been kind of tempting and uh, and, and a, a draw? to violate God's standards for their relationships with the nations. Jessica.
2: Um, try not to, I'm trying to figure out how to not be too broad on it, but um, just kind of like thinking about how when Israel first asked um, Samuel, like, Hey, we want a King, just like all the nations around us. Um, one, I think is a bit of not peer pressure, but kind of just looking around and, and wanting okay. to adopt um, something that you know, especially like when you think about, you know, they were in Egypt for 400 years. Um, so it's something they knew well. Um, they seen that, you know, the splendor of Egypt, and they wanted that for themselves. Um, so lust of the eyes, and lust of the flesh. Um, I think that all ties back into why they, why they were te- tempted to, you know, intermarry and adopt these these things that they thought were grand because it was something tangible for them um even though they knew the culture and they they knew that you know god was all powerful because he brought them out of so much um but they wanted something with him all the time Um, just kind of like we are today as a society we're very i want right now um and have constant reminders um for us and it's it's easy to sidetrack because we we tend to think of god in an abstract manner rather than knowing that he's with us, um, even though we can't see him.
0: That's a great comment. I mean, all the way around, but I love, especially what you're pointing out about the, the tangibility of political power of the nations was tangible. Even this as in Isaiah 31 highlights, you can see the number of horses that they've got. You can see the number of chariots and that gives you a sense of stability and strength and courage. Like, all right, we're going to be okay. Cause look how many horses we got. God, you can't see. You know, you can't know that he's on your side. It's a, it's a faith thing, which makes it a lot more challenging and, and certainly would have been part of the reason why aligning with the nations, relying on the nations, trusting in the nations, turning to the nations uh, would have been a big temptation. Other thoughts that you guys want to highlight about, uh, about Israel and, uh, and uh, why entangling themselves with the nations um, would have been pretty, pretty tempting for them, a pretty strong pull for them. We read Caleb's comment right here, which kind of goes along with some of what uh, Jess just brought up, which is a great point. It's tempting to want to be like others we live around, and I'll tell you that's a that's a huge one. Um, if you ever read the prophets, sometimes reading the prophets in the Old Testament is hard because, it's like, man, what is going on here? This is long bits of poetry that are challenging to keep up with. Here's if you want to just dive in at first. Here's what you should know: the prophets are getting to Israel for violating their covenant with God because they had gotten so close to the nations. And there's all kinds of things, all kinds of social injustices, all kinds of um, acts of wickedness, all kinds of idolatry that was just coming from, they just wanted to be like their neighbors. Jess pointed out um, uh, in 1 Samuel 8, give us a king like the nations around us. That was their problem. That's why God said, don't be like them because the nations are ruled by evil. They're filled with sin. They're destroying themselves and imploding on themselves why would you want to be like them? Be a holy people to me. Be my treasured possession. Be my holy nation and don't get caught up in all that other stuff. That's the, that's the, the, the appeal that God makes to his people throughout the Old Testament. That's why the holiness of Israel was so important. Twofold. One, God's saying, I want to bless you. They are cursed in evil and sin. I want to bless you and I want to utilize you to bring blessing to all the nations. So don't get entangled with them. Don't make alliances with them. Don't rely on them. Don't, don't, don't worship their gods. Don't become like them. You need to remember that you are something different, something separate, something holy to me, so that you don't get consumed in the sins of the nations. That's why there's a number of scriptures that, that speak to this and how God uh, wanted this so much from his people, that how he wanted them to be different. Um, one of them that speaks to me is Isaiah 5, chapter 58 in the book of Isaiah, God is constantly, I mean, we're reading it right here in Isaiah 31. Why have you, why have you just become like the nations? But he said, look, if you guys would wake up, if you would restore your faithfulness to me, if you'd remember your ancestor, Abraham, Isaiah 51 speaks about that. said so if you'd think about Abraham and if you'd be like him, he left the nations. He wasn't a part of them. He wasn't entangled with them. If you do that, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. He's saying, I want to bless you. And if you will avoid being entangled with the nations, then I will take care of you. Not only that, though, you'll also be something for the nations. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to dwell in. In other words, God's saying, I'm gonna use you to put things back together to repair the world. And it's not gonna be a nation state. It's not gonna be um, you know, something else. You guys have failed at that, as that was pointed out earlier. But this is where whenever Christ came, he fulfilled this mission. Jesus was God's light in the world. Jesus was the repairer and restorer of all the things that are broken in the world. And all those who follow him are doing the same thing. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and verse nine, you are the new Israel. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has given us a new identity in Christ, just like he gave Israel a new identity uh, in their, in Abraham and through the Exodus. God has given his people blessing. Uh, his grace his mercy his constant provision and care his love he hears our prayers all these beautiful things god has blessed us just like god blessed his holy nation israel in a way that he didn't bless anybody else he blessed them and he blesses us and israel had a specific purpose in the world to be god's royal priesthood to be his light to the nations isaiah 49 would say they failed in that because they became like the nations they allied themselves with the nations they intermarried with these nations who were worshiping other gods and so now instead of worshiping the true god of heaven they start worshiping the other gods that were opposed to the true god of heaven and in a similar way uh, we can fall into the trap of being so entangled with the world around us that we miss out on our mission We now are the light of the world. It's not the United States of America. It's not any particular brand of politics within the United States of America doing that. It's the people of God, those who are in Christ that are here to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous night. Uh, Here's kind of last last statement from me. And then if any of you guys want to um, add in some extra stuff, that'd be great. Israel's holiness from worldly political entanglement Was crucial for their blessed relationship with God and their divine mission in the world. If we are the new Israel, and I think we've seen the New Testament points out it's different, but we are this fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. We are the people of God in the world today. Then the same is true for us. We've got to watch out from getting so entangled with ideals and movements and thoughts and agendas and nations and nation states that we forget what nation we really belong to. Listen, I hope, because I live here, I hope the United States of America does really well. I hope that the United States of America would be a just, a truly just nation. I'd love for us to have great prosperity. Uh, I hope that there's safety and security from foreign powers invading. That's what I want, because that's where I live. That's where a great majority of the people who I know and love are here, but I'm not from here. I'm a part of a different nation. And I've got to remind myself of that every single day of my life, that I belong to another country. I serve a different king than the people here serve. I have different ideals than the people of this nation where I live. I have different goals and visions because of my God and my king. And I have a different purpose in the world because I'm a part of the nation of God. All right, um, let me stop. What do you guys want to say? Thoughts, comments, observations. I'm gonna read. It looks like somebody had something here. O'Brien had something here. Um, yeah, and this is a great call that uh, that whenever you're getting persecuted with people around you, you kind of it's like, hey, if I can't beat them, I might as well join them. And that's a real temptation for us, and something we got to watch out for as well. Um, let me pause. Thoughts, comments, observations. Um, I know we kind of you know ran around the world talking about Israel and so forth tonight, but maybe you guys want to add in some some thoughts that would be valuable for us to consider as we think about us being a holy nation in the world, just like Israel was a holy nation uh, among the nations uh, of old. All right, thank you guys, so great. So here's the question that I think uh, this discussion begs. Does this mean Christians aren't supposed to be involved at all with the politics of the nations where they live? And the answer I'm going to give is no. I don't think that's necessarily the conclusion. That may be the conclusion you come to, and uh, we'll see over the next few weeks. You may come to that, and that's, that's perfectly fine, I think. Um, but what we're going to actually look at next time is while, while God's people are not to become entangled or uh, wrapped up in or obsessive about or loyal to the political powers of the world around them, we do see God's people engage with political powers, including foreign nations, non-Israelite nations. And there's some really cool principles we're going to be looking at next week from mostly the book of Daniel. We may end up talking about people like Esther, Mordecai, Nehemiah, other people like that, but mostly we'll probably talk about um, people in the book of Daniel and a little bit from Jeremiah chapter 29 and think about what it means to to politically engage, understanding that we're not a part of the United States of America or whatever nation where we live. We're not really a part of it, but if we're allowed to participate in the process, how should we do that? Should we do that? What, what should it look like if we do participate politically uh, in the nations of the world around us? And that's what we'll talk about um, next week, Lord willing.
1: The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.